Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Wallen, and John Papa talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. This is episode 24, and today we're going to talk about multi-app and multi-team development with JavaScript. And today I have my co-host, Ward Bell. How you doing? Hi, everybody. Ward, I hear you've been up to quite a bit lately uh, in between your your pain medication. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Well, and that's really what I want to talk about. Uh, what drugs am I using? Actually, I'm not using any. I'm trying to figure out how to deal with that. But let's put that aside. Uh, one of the things as, uh, as I get along in, in, in the years of doing this kind of thing, I'm starting to get reflect on the path that led me here and what the world of computing, how it's changed over the time that I've been in it. And I'm reading more about the history of the people and what they did. And that's fascinating to me. And uh, my pick at the end is going to be a moment of that. Um, a, a dimension of that, which is um, titled The Secret History of Women Coders. So we'll, we'll get to that oh, again. That's fascinating. You know, I, I think one thing I really respect about you, and, and I try to emulate this from you actually, and what I do is being very reflective, you know, not just on, you know, what you say and do, but also about kind of where we've come from. Because I can't tell you how many times I have said, hey, you know, there's this new cool thing people are using. And in a very nice way, you're like, John, we did that 25 years ago. That was called. <laughs> so I think, it's, I think it's a good thing to like look back and go, you know what? Maybe we haven't invented everything we think we have. Which isn't to say that it isn't fresh. I mean, I, I, or that there isn't anything new under the sun. In fact, it's fascinating to see it come back around. I think the, in the last show we were dipping into AI. And yeah, I was doing keyword analysis and natural language processing in 1970, whatever. Um, but wow, has that changed, uh, since, uh, since then. And, and, uh, so it, it, it's a little bit of the same and a whole lot different. And I think that's the fascinate part of the fascination. Yeah. To me, a lot of times what's changing those is just the accessibility of being able to get to those kind of things. Um, it's more people can use it or at least more people know about it these days than they did back then. Oh Yeah. So on this uh, note of building large applications, uh, we have today as our guest one of our favorite people who builds lots of really large applications, Victor Safkin. How you doing, Victor? Doing right. How are you? Very good. And just to let people know who Victor is, Victor is a co-founder of Narwhal Technologies. That's N-R-W-L I-O. You can see that in the show notes, where we provide Angular consulting to large teams who want to get their applications to production quickly. Uh, and Victor is also very modest. He is... A uh, brilliant mind, uh, a great person, a uh, good friend of the show. And then he also was a former member of the, or he is a former member of the Google Angular development team. So mm -hmm. lots of respect here. Uh, thanks for coming on, oh, Victor. Cool. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, when we talked about bringing you on the show, one of the things that we tossed out there was that your company and you specifically, a lot of the things you seem to build, at least outside looking in, are large-scale apps or apps that are built by large teams, which don't always... Right overlap. So I, I'd love to kind of get your perspective on what kind of things do you run into that are challenges when you build these? And maybe we can start off by talking about what is a large app to you? I want to just <clears throat> mention that we are helping teams build large apps, right? So uh, building large apps can take many, many years, right? So uh, if you want to be exposed to a lot of large apps, you kind of sort of have to help a little bit here, a little bit there, build a part over here, a part over there, right? And uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, I, I don't see through a lot of apps being built from the beginning to the very end, right? Uh, uh, I'm mostly involved uh, sort of here and there in the middle of, uh, of the development. What is a large app to me? Uh, it's very hard to define because it, it's not as simple as we have a lot of components or like a lot of lines of code and stuff like that, right? I, it's a mix of different things. Uh, the first, the most important thing to me when it comes to what is a large app is how many people are involved in, in building a large app. Because if you think about uh, a few very productive folks, like let's say John Carmack and you know, Romero early in the days, you know, building games, those were sizable apps, right? But built by a team of three or four. So I wouldn't call those large apps because the way they develop those apps, uh, 
it's not the same way like a hundred people at a large enterprise to develop an app of the same size, right? So the number of people or teams working on an app is the, probably the most important, uh, you know, part of what, to me personally, uh, uh, makes an app a large app. And then obviously the sort of the scale, right? How many uh, like components, lines of code, libraries used, and stuff like that, right? So how easy it is to refactor an app, you know, how easy it is to go through the source code and make a change, right? If you have a 10,000 line app, it is trivial, right? You can do a lot of large refactorings in, uh, in minutes or hours, right? Uh, I mean, days uh, in, in the worst case scenario. If you have 10 million lines of code, well, then, you know, you need to plan for it, right? Some refactorings can take years and right? because it's such a large body of code. And then uh, the third component is how many changes are going into the app, right? If you have a, 100,000 line app that a lot of people are changing every day. Uh, the type of process you need to put in place to make sure it is maintainable uh, are different from if you have a, a like a, a, a bigger app, right? A half a million line app that two people change once in a while, right? So it's like the number of people is the first important part of the story. Then, you know, just physically how big it is. And then, you know, how many changes per day you would receive from different people who may not know each other, right? I have to say that your second and third ones are how I would look at it. Um, you know, track, that's where the real problems are. Just to uh, be clear, uh, to remind people, what were the second and third then, Ward? Oh, yeah. It's uh, how many different people are working on it, and are they in different teams that, such that they have their own, their own life and their own cadence? And then is it actively being developed? Is the, that was the third one. Uh, be, uh, now... Refresh my memory, Victor. There's a name for how um, for the point of view that says, you know, uh, the structure of an application mirrors the structure of the its social development. What is the name? Yeah, Conway's law. Uh, that's it, it. Conway's law. So Conway's law has got to be one of those things that's always run. You're running into as you're. Yeah, exactly. And I actually think the bad thing. Folks usually talk about it in a negative way. Like they talk about if you have four teams building a compiler, you're going to have a, like a four phase compiler <laughs> because every team is going to build their own. The, like box, right? That they would connect. And on one side, it can be scary, right? You can say uh, sometimes you want more cohesion and more collaboration, sort of, you know, a single unit that seems indivisible, right? Uh, but often, uh, very often, you you actually want those boundaries, right? You actually want the things to be built separately. You actually want sometimes less communication between the teams, so they are forced to communicate more formally to draw like a proper API boundaries, right? So uh, it's sort of a double-edged sword. can be a bad thing sometimes, but, you know, uh, at times it can be a good thing. I think so. I agree with you. It's, it's not a bad thing sometimes for an organization to say, you know, we actually want one team to be in North America and the other team to be in Europe, right? Because then you will be forced to define that boundary as clearly as you can because you'll be... You won't be able to just chat with each other, you know, the whole day long, right? So I uh, totally agree, but it can have a centrifugal force. And so as somebody, you know, like you who is trying to say, okay, that's great that everybody's doing their own thing, but how do I keep them all together? And also, how do I, how do I promote, isn't the other thing that you want to promote knowledge so that anybody can pick up anything? So what do you do? Yeah, so that's a very good point, right? So I think there are a few uh, components in here. And uh, if you look at large companies uh, like Google, Facebook, and others, and Microsoft, uh, many of them explore the idea of having sort of a unified stack, at least a build stack, right, that folks can use. Because if imagine if I go from a team to team. It, it doesn't have to be Europe or US. We can be in next room in the same building, right? And if we use very different stacks, and I want to uh, see what you built, right, the part of the app you're working on, or the app you're working on, which is very similar to mine, I need to be able to explore that app with ease, right? Being able to maybe run it, do some stuff with it, right? Maybe contribute to it because I want to unify our approaches, maybe because I discovered a better pattern that I want to promote, right? And uh, if you have entirely different stacks and everything sort of done very sort of ad hoc, right? Uh, this is a very challenging thing, right? Jumping into sort of a legacy front-end project, like a legacy AngularJS project, and trying to figure out how to run it, how to augment it, how to make changes to it, is way harder than, say, jumping to a CLI project, right, from one company to another company, where the code is somewhat laid out the same, at least on the surface, right? The surface looks kind of similar. The commands you run is similar. The architectural patterns are similar. Yeah, exactly. You, I can get, you can look, you can look at a project structure that came out of the CLI and say, I know exactly what they're trying to do here. Yeah, exactly. You can explore it in, in an hour and have a fairly good idea, at least about sort of main business areas that the application is touching, right? What LOBs are involved? 
Whereas uh, so with the legacy AngularJS app, right, or with many other frameworks today, it's it's more challenging because it is less structured. Right? So having this unified tooling, the foundation upon which we all can build, right, uh, can be uh, even though it may seem constraining, right, because you are uh, you don't have as much freedom in deciding in, in, in you know which tool to use to bundle stuff or whatever, right. Uh, in a way, it's liberating because you then can easily go from project to a project and feel almost at home, right? Uh, you can switch teams and within a week or two weeks, being able to contribute productively, right, to a code base, uh, which is unheard of right? if you think about sort of legacy stuff where it can take you half a year to figure out how to build your thing correctly, right? <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that's the first part of the story, I think, making sure that they. Right. And, and the other thing, don't you think, is like when they say, well, you know, only Todd knows how that works. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I mean, that, that, that makes me cringe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, no offense, Todd, but <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that you're right. So the the fact that you have to ask someone, you know, what is going on, and sometimes you obviously have to, right? So it's all about degree. It's not like in principle everything is known to everyone right now, right? We are talking about that about the degree, right? If you want to ask how does that very like masterfully written algorithm works, well, maybe that's Todd, right? Uh, but if you're asking, like, I need to be able to run that test, Todd shouldn't be involved, okay? You should be able to figure it out on your own. Right? You know, I've worked on a lot of these these large teams over the years, and as you're talking about this, it's funny. There's things I don't think I've ever really noticed consciously uh, that you're talking about. For example, you mentioned the Angular CLI for a moment, and, you know, we use it, and we like it because it's consistent, and a lot of people like to have that consistent out of the box. It, you know, generates the project, and it's got the build process in it. But I think what we take for granted sometimes, at least I do, is that when I go from company to company to company, and I get asked by, like a lot of you guys do, when I go to these conferences, hey, here's my project, take a look at it and help me understand what's going on here because this problem, there's a huge value in that I don't have to orient myself too much to look at that. And then I think as a hiring manager, it's got to be nice to know if you're building with a tool or framework that uh, has something like this out of the box, that you can say, look, I'm looking for Angular, React, or Vue, et cetera. And there are certain patterns to these different frameworks which are just understood and assumed. So when you bring new people into the team, they don't have to spend weeks figuring out where you put everything. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. So uh, I think that's, to me, that's the most uh, value that I derive out of the CLI because I can put together a pack config and run my sort of in like five minutes. Okay, so that part of the CLI is still useful because to do it correctly and well, there's a lot of work goes into that, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, I can I can live without it, right? It, the fact that no matter which pr- uh, company I go to, if they use Angular, right, and if they build around Angular CLI, which is not everyone, but the majority, I can, in like in an hour, really get a, a rough idea of what's going on, right? If there is a bug I need to debug, I can, I can do it, right, in an hour, which is uh, a remarkable thing, uh, given... Uh, not how bad it is, but how different it is, right? If you yeah. uh, compare it to the AngularJS ecosystem, where every project was unique when it comes to the way it was built and architect, but, to, but also when it comes to the tooling used to, to, to run it, right? And it, it wasn't that easy, right? Uh, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't take me an hour, right? It would take me, like, days. And the CLI is one part of it, but the other part would be, say, uh, having, like, TypeScript. And, you know, uh, there are other tools that contribute to the same experience, right, that the CLI contributes to. You know, you, you mentioned that, and it's given me a little deja vu. I remember a long time ago in the AngularJS days, Victor, Victor, sorry, uh, Igor Menor of the Angular team, uh, I guess he's the tech lead officially. Is that his title there, Victor? I think so, right. Yeah, so, so he's he's the guy, basically. Right. <laughs> and we were, we were talking with him, uh, several of us, and he rolled out some kind of a spreadsheet in front of us saying, here and I'm making up this number. There was something like 50 different starting points. Uh, we're in with Yeoman and GitHub repos, etc. Where people could start creating an Angular repo of their own. This is way before CLIs really were for Angular. Uh, I remember looking at that, going, "My lord, that's a lot of different ways to create the same thing." You know? <laughs> yeah, I know. So the unification, no matter what how scary it is at times, is actually a great thing, right? Uh, if you uh, you want some diversity in tooling, right? To make sure that you don't, you know, so you innovate, right? Uh, but the cost of having two tools side by side, even though they can be excellent tools, right? If you had a different, the second CLI, right? The cost would be enormous in terms of the amount of time uh, you would have to spend figuring out the sort of differences between the two, right? It's like Yarn and PM. I really like Yarn. I think Yarn is better, right? But having Yarn and PM together, right? Or like when one app uses Yarn and another one and PM, causes me so much headache, right? So 
it's hard to even imagine how much headache I would get if we had a like a CLI, a different branch of CLI, which does different things and have different conventions. It's just like so much pain. So I, I want to ask you about your NPM, but before we do, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Word here, inviting you, no, encouraging you to attend the Dev Intersection Conference in Orlando in June 2019. Dev Intersection is one of my favorite conferences and is perfect for those of you whose JavaScript life intersects the Microsoft ecosystem. John Papa, Dan Wallin, and I will be there speaking and giving workshops, and so will many of my heroes. Look at that list of terrific speakers on the website and be impressed. These folks are as eager to meet you as you are to meet them. The opportunity to talk directly to speakers and share experiences with other attendees is why you should go. It's why I always go and come home with fresh ideas about topics I knew well and insights into technologies I've been promising myself for weeks that I'd get into someday. This conference kicks doors in. Learn about it at devintersection.com. Mark your calendar for June 10th through the 13th, 2019, and get a discount when you sign up with the code PAPA, P-A-P-A. See you there. Victor, I'm glad you brought up Yarn and NPM because I think these days, not a lot of folks remember that at one point, these were very, very different. Like you get a very different experience from the two of them. Uh, and lately they come much closer together, all the still advantages to both. I'm curious how you feel because it sounds like, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you were saying that you, even though you like Yarn better, you feel like it's more of a headache to pull that into a project for multi-team apps than NPM. Uh, uh, no, I would say that if you if your whole organization agrees on one, it doesn't matter which one. I would prefer Yarn because I like the ergonomics of Yarn. The commands look neater to me, right? Because they kind of make more sense to me. And maybe because I came from a certain dev couch, right? It just matches my intuition a bit better. It's a better I mean, developer experience, uh, I think many would argue, yeah. Yeah, so uh, where, it come, where I sort of have a lot of, uh, a little bit of a you know, beef with having two instead of one is, uh, say, if you deal with like global packages. And so it happens, we distribute uh, a collection of schematics to the CLI, which is a global package usually, right? Which is next to the CLI, right? You would have those two installed as, peer, as global peer dependencies. The way Yarn and NPM handle global peer dependencies is fundamentally different which creates a lot of headache in making sure it works in both, right? Yeah. And uh, sometimes we actually had a case where it couldn't work in both in principle. So we like we were kind of at a loss, right? It's like we need to just pick one where it works or not. And uh, it's things like that where just having two options already creates a lot of headache, right? Uh, and uh, you can see it anytime you, you're in a place where you share something, right? Uh, like global packages, you tend to have just this one collection of global packages, right? So... Oh, like at least you think of them as one collection of global packages locally, right? So even though you have a local yarn, like for your project, or a local NPM for your project, you still in your head share something global, right? And that's where it gets uh, a bit messier, right? So I'm not in no way, right, telling people not to use yarn. I use yarn for all our private projects, right? I enjoy it more as a developer. It's just uh, my point was more to the degree that having a single CLI, like something that everyone can rely on. And yes, it might be broken in certain ways here and there, but at least we all agree that it's broken in those ways and we don't need to learn how different tools are broken in different ways, right? Yeah, I think picking one is, is a great way to go. It, it doesn't, it's not a hard and fast rule, but if you're going to have more than one, I think you have to have reasons or at least something documented to say, when we're not going to use NPM, use Yarn for this case. But how do you feel about things like NPX? You mentioned global packages. With NPX, you don't even really need them anymore. Yeah, NPX. Uh, we actually use it for... So one of the things that we launched... Uh, Sometimes it was like a package you can run to enrich your VS Code experience to make it a bit more Angular uh, forward, to make it a better experience for Angular developers. And the easiest way to deliver it would be an NPX uh, script, right? Or whatever, you know, like uh, use an NPX command, right? That would get the package from, from NPM. Uh, so I, I feel like, to me personally, it feels like a replacement for, uh, like, you know, back in the day, you would like curl a bar script from the internet <laughs> and then just run it, right? Like, okay, that's a cleaner way to do that, right? And that's fine. I take it as the replacement for that. But I'm very, maybe just me, but I'm very scared uh, when I just run a command that I usually, don't, you don't specify a version you want to run it against, right? Uh, that would do something to my local machine, right? And I'm not in control of every single version of what's running, right? So I uh, I kind of use it as a replacement for curl and, you know, you know, very curl bar script and just execute that, uh, but nothing beyond that. But I know some people use it a lot more, you know, in, in their dev environment, that's fine. Well, let's get back to um, the multi-team, multi... Uh, and there's and there's the other dimension here was multi-app, and we should 
we should definitely bring that to the fore. Um, and, but before I do, I wanted to bring one thing forward. We, we never actually said how many people, because uh, a lot of people think that this might be more than them. And I, and I think what you're, you were stressing is that if it's multi-team, it doesn't matter how many people are involved in those yeah, teams. So, it, it, like so my right. company, the company I'm working for, has maybe three or four teams. They're all right. small. So in aggregate, maybe there's 20 people who could touch the code base. That's that not a huge number of people. But when, when, as soon as they're split up into four teams, you've got right. all the problems you're talking about. And I've been well, on some where you've had literally like two people on each team. There's only two teams. But they're interrelated projects. Uh, and I think you still have some of those concerns, even in smaller ones like that. Now, you, both of you are uh, right. It's 100% true that it's not the number. I mean, the number of people kind of matters in general, but uh, it's number of teams. Or rather, if you imagine the number of projects in your in your in, in, that you're developing, or number of apps. Let's say it's like ten apps or five apps or whatever, right? And the number of teams, let's say it's like I don't know, three or four teams, right? Is the relationship between between those two sets that what makes it complicated, right? Because if you had like five apps and five teams, and every team builds their own app independently, you don't have a problem, okay? That's that's easy to manage, right? You you have a perfectly partitioned uh, code base, right? You don't ever interact with each other. You have no breaking each other. That's totally fine. Where it gets messy is that when that graph of projects and teams gets sort of you know. Uh, Define in a very loose way, and it's a complex graph, where you can change something that can affect not just you, but three other teams, right? And you don't know about it because you don't see them in front of you, right? They are somewhere else, right? And that's where sort of better dev practices and like better tooling is helping the most, right? Is when you can affect someone else whom you're not aware of, or at least you don't know in what way you affect them exactly. So let's take that. I want to put something in front of you that's particularly bothersome to me, and maybe you have a great answer for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, we have multiple teams, but their work is all going into the same app. Um, but they have different features that they're responsible for developing, and they're at their own cadences. And, and yet we have to release the app on a, on a regular basis, say every two weeks. Like, how do you, how do you manage multiple teams doing things that take more than one sprint? Yeah, that's a wonderful, a wonderful question, and I, uh, I would, uh, it's actually a, a fairly common scenario. Like, if you go to any, uh, like financial institution and go into their app, right? You usually have, uh, like a single app. I put app in quotes because it's basically a separate LOB, so lines of business, right? Composed of multiple teams building their own products, right? Uh, that are fairly distinct from each other, right? If you go to a bank and you have, like, say, Capital One, and you have the card section, right? It's different from bank section, right? The different teams build those at different cadences. They locate in different places, right? Uh, so, uh, but uh, from the user's point of view, it's the same app, which can be deployed, for example, uh, together, right? So the first question there I would pose is, uh, or as a, like, you have actually a choice. You can deploy the whole app together, or you can deploy those LOBs separately, right? And uh, depending on your organization, one can be, uh, I mean, it's trade-off, right? Deploying things together is obviously simpler engineering-wise, in the sense that it's a single build, you know, with a single optimization you run, uh, you know, there is a single CI process involved, you know, you run a single set of end-to-end tests, yada, yada, right? Uh, deploying uh, multiple LO, like LOBs separately, individually, which are still part of the same app. The app would load those bundles, right, in some way using, you know, Webpack, JSONP, or whatever, right, and glue them together at runtime, uh, is, uh, can be easier for you as an organization, because then you can say, uh, if I'm working on my LOB, say, card, uh, I can deploy tomorrow and I'm not going to affect you, right? Because I know that I'm only deploying my LOB, right? And your uh, bank won't be affected. And hence, you should not be retested, right? The point is not even the deployment part, but you need to make sure you don't break someone else, right? And uh, if you have manual testing in a process, which many organizations do, uh, it's very hard for you to say, I want to deploy my bit. If you roll, like, fold into someone else's changes, you just cannot do it, right? So then those organizations would deploy those pieces separately, and then you need some sort of infrastructure to make sure that they are consistent, meaning that you don't deploy, for example, card that switch to Angular 7, 7, where his bank is at Angular 6, right? Because they're going to share that Angular. So things are going to get crazy, right? So you need to have some infrastructure to make sure that they are compatible, that everything you deploy still relies on the same versions of core framework, the same version of some sort of, you know, core libraries, first-party core libraries, the same version of maybe some sort of shell you load, Stuff like that, right? So you still have the choice. So you don't have to deploy everything together. You can actually do the other option that many organizations do. But if you do deploy together, yes, you have a problem with how do you align uh, everyone's schedules, right? And uh, the the solution here, or like 
not the solution, but a way to do it, right, which I think works relatively well, is to do a trunk-based development with release branches. I've been advocating it for a long time, and finally, I think it's because of Google and other companies, it's sort of getting more uh, more adoption, uh, because people sort of figure out that, yeah, that's a reasonable way at least for some organizations to manage to manage their large code bases. Can can you can you put that in everyday English? The the phrase that you just yeah, used? yeah let, let me expand on it because uh, like uh, you know uh, it all kind of means certain things, but because we devalue terms very much in our you know in our field, uh, even trunk based development can mean lots of different things right now, right? What I mean by it is that you have a master branch, right? Master or trunk, right? That everyone, all teams branch out from because it's the same the same Git repo presumably, right? So let's say I branch out from that master branch and I'm creating my feature, uh, let's say for cart. Let's say we have cart and bank, two LOBs con- you know, contributing to the same master branch concurrently, right? So I don't know what the other LOB is doing. The team is in a different city, right? I have no idea what their plans are, right? So I'm working on the cart feature the, uh, and my plan is to partition this feature such that I can merge something into master at least once a week, right? It doesn't have to be once a week. You can decide what the interval is, right? But I need to merge quickly enough. And if I didn't finish the whole feature, which, you know, is obviously can be the case for any really large feature, right? Not everything fits into a week, right? Uh, I would try to protect that functionality with uh, feature toggles, right? Maybe I have a separate copy of the component. I'm redoing from scratch. Now it's a lot fancier, right? So I would have a feature toggle, which would allow me to turn it on, right? If I want to. Right. So at least a feature, you, some people call that a feature flag. Yeah, a yeah. feature flag would be. Uh, so in this case, uh, it can be build time or runtime. You know, that's you know uh, really up, up to up to you, depending on what you want to you know want to get, what experience you want to get. So you would have that if you want to deploy. It probably has to be build time, so you don't ship extra code. You know what I mean? Uh, so you would do that, and then yes, your clients don't see the new functionality yet, right? But at least unit test runs again. You know your functionality end to end test run again your functionality. So your code is integrated. So if the other team is merging something, say changing a shared library that breaks you, they would know and they would you know adjust. So you're not uh, because the point of of doing that frequently is that to avoid uh, painful integrations, right? Uh, right? If you have to wait for two months to finish a feature, then Bad. you like it will be impossible to integrate back, right? Uh, exactly. So that's sort of the point. You merge it back, you protect it with some sort of toggle, so people don't actually expose to it, the clients, right? But you run tests against it. At some point, when you're done. You can start the release process. How does it work, right? So imagine I am at at, at master right now, right? My master, like I merged the last PR, implementing my new functionality. I want to release it, right? Uh, you know, someone is happy. The director of engineering told me to release it. Whatever, right? We have a process in place. We we want to release it. If I just start that, take the chart from master, and let's say build it and push it to QA and then to UAT or whatever environments it needs to go through, right? In a large enterprise, uh, the problem here is that if I just do that. Someone can uh, merge stuff, like the other LOB, the other team, can merge stuff into master, right? So if I do it, very likely, some some minor things will be discovered, right? Because you, it's it's not very common for a large company that has sort of not really well-established uh, testing culture to have perfect builds, right? When no they have a release no candidate... No kidding. We all, yes. As a matter of fact, I was going to ask you, how many companies do you go in have any serious automated testing at all, but we'll, we'll, but we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a great question as well. So that's why we assume that some changes will have to be made to that release, right? It's not ready. It's almost ready, right? So we need to maybe merge a few PRs, fix a few things here and there, right? So, but the problem is, if we just naively keep releasing from master, what happens is that folks will, uh, like the other LOB can merge their stuff into master, right? Which can affect me, right? And then I feel like the foundation can be, you know, uh, uh, replaced under me, right? And, uh, I will be in a lot of pain. So I want to basically freeze that master, right? I want to create a branch and only merge my fixes in there. So the way I would do it, if I discover a bug and say QA, I would apply this fix to master first. So it's still trying based development when master has the latest code. And then I would cherry pick that fix into my branch, right? So in this case, my branch becomes sort of like a subset of master. The branch, uh, you know, only contains, it, it, it started from master, and then it only contains the fixes that I merged into master, but doesn't contain changes from the other team, right? So I do that for, like, let's say, a week, two weeks, you know, uh, ideally it shouldn't be much longer than that. And then once my release is a bit more stable, right, uh, ideally it has no issues, right? Uh, it gets deployed to production, at which point that branch doesn't get merged into master, right? It's still trunk-based development, but master is king, right? Uh, the branch doesn't get merged into master, uh, because all the commits in that branch are already in master. I merge them in master first. I cherry pick them on top of the branch, right? And by doing so, we kind of 
have a, a, a process where your code gets integrated into master frequently enough, right? Uh, you protect uh, your clients from uh, you know unfinished functionality by using feature toggles. And when you want to make a release, you create a release branch that you sort of uh, carefully curate. And then once your release is done, you throw away the release branch. When do you cut that? When do you cut that release branch? Before the sprint or after the sprint? or or at a code freeze point? Uh, you, you don't have a code freeze. That is uh, the, 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 the the important uh, part that you cannot have a code freeze. Uh, I mean, you can have a code freeze for your team, right? Let's say you have my LOB when I want to freeze, but you cannot influence the other team. That that's okay. sort of the, uh, the the important thing that if the other team is working on bank, you cannot just say, oh, I need to uh, fix some stuff in cars. Okay. So let me, let me put it another way. I'm going to release this sprint. I'm going to go. I know that I'm I'm going to release to the to the world. I'm going to put it through the environments heading for the world. And I do that every two weeks, let's say. So when do I create this um, this re- this well, we'll call it a release branch, and who and who gets their stuff into that? So uh, that's uh, it. Really depends on who is making the release, because basically, if you if you think about it, your functionality was protected by feature toggles before, right? So let, let's say we have two teams merging stuff in the master, uh, the car team and the bank team. The bank team, let's say, isn't finished with their functionality, right? So it's all protected with feature toggles. So when it comes to what the user sees, they still see the old release in master. The old release, rather, the, the one that, uh, you know, that they already see in pro. So master doesn't have anything that is shown to uh, users when it comes to, like, showing the bank functionality, right? It's all old stuff. The new stuff is protected, right? So I'm the car team, want to make a release, right? I want to say that, hey, folks, you know, we finished our functionality. We want to turn off feature toggles, right? Switch from false to true, right? To, to show the new functionality. So it's me, the car team, who is going to, uh, you know, create a release branch. And I'm going to cherry pick only commits from my team, only bug fixes from my team onto that branch, right? And then once that release goes out, the bank team can do the same, right? So uh, in this case, you like you have a team-oriented release. And uh, uh, the reason for that, right, is that we assume that the two teams cannot, co- like, cannot really collaborate. Right, they are fairly independent. That you cannot, you know, ask for your other teams not to change some shared functionality, you know, whatever. But in your case, if you actually, let's say, you're all together, right, you a bunch of teams together, and you release one app, you don't release card or bank separately. You just release one app every two weeks. You can have a release branch that you start at, at, at the beginning of the release, and you can just say all the changes from card and bank that became open that were switched from false to true, right? They were finished. Will be in that release. And as such, uh, we only cherry pick commits into that release branch that fix bugs in those changes, right? So regardless of who merges new functionality in the master, we're not going to cherry pick that because it's new functionality. We're going to cherry pick only bug fixes into that release branch, right? Well, you know what? I mean, I'm, uh, we should we should move along, but I'm going to tell you the thing that's killed me with that process is that the cherry picking doesn't. It turns out that they are invariably relate, relying on something that didn't get cherry picked, and you get, end up with like I thought that was done, that was supposed to be in the release, and it didn't get there because somebody missed it in the cherry picking process. And this happens over and over. Yeah, again. we can talk about it more, right? And I, I think that uh, as any process can be misused, or like, or you know, you, you can ha- like it has flaws, right? You, like there's a human error everywhere, right? Uh, but I, uh, I guess it just it just gives you a way. To isolate yourself from changes in master, particularly right? when when they have a practice of mer- merging, and you've right. got a hundred commits, all right, that represented it in a single PR, and they all flow in. It's just yeah, uh, but but, like, but that sort of goes again to trunk based development thing, right? So the the release branch stuff works uh, uh, well, right, or relatively well when you integrate frequently, right? Because then if you integrate frequently, uh, and I, I I I would share that that's a key part. Right, the release branch, uh, you know, technique is useful uh, for like any non-trivial project because you want to isolate yourself from changes in master while you're polishing the release. That's basically the, the reason for the release branch, right? Uh, but integrating frequently the master, so having very small PRs, right, that you just do not show to the user, is uh, sort of key. And it can be more expensive, as you can imagine, because you need to make sure the old functionality still works, right? Uh, but I think in the long run, it ends up being cheaper because you don't have any painful integrations. You never have PR 100 commits because you must integrate once a week, right? So you have to have a reasonably sized PR that you merge back. Yeah? I, I, this just isn't working for me as opposed to the idea that master represents the next release and I keep my flags in there. 
and then uh you know i have a i take a snapshot ju- you know just before i'm going to qa it perhaps but master, master and that's why we did it at, at, at angular right we'd have a master and that was it that's the next thing and everybody's contributing it to it and then yeah the same thing what i'm talking about uh we are in agreement the only difference here is before the release master is still your release it's just if you need to make a few fixes here and there you would do it in a branch right so if you if you release it's perfect so you never have to make any fixes right you would never need a release branch because you would just release from master but i would cover i would cut the release branch just you know reasonable you know in a short window before i was literally going to release and then i would just have fixes it would say okay so this represents my functionality. Well, anyway, it's an interesting dilemma. Well, tell us about um, one of the things you're doing for multi-app stuff is you, you've introduced some tooling recently for the Angular developer. Tell us about what that is. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I can talk about it. So since most of our, uh, we really believe in multi-app, multi-team kind of setup, uh, uh, which we call like monorepo, but it's not exactly the same thing as the Google monorepo, right? Uh, Google has a monorepo which contains the majority of Google's code. Uh, when we talk about monorepos in, in talks or in writing, it usually means like a bunch of teams will contribute to the same repository, but you know, obviously the organization will have lots of different repos, right? So we believe in that approach, and I can talk about why I think it's beneficial. And we covered some of that before, right? It creates a solid foundation of standardized tooling, which we, you can then use to, uh, uh, to develop effectively. Uh, so we build a set of uh, power-ups for Angular CLI to make CLI a great way to implement that style of development, right? And we call it sort of Angular CLI Power Apps, NX, which is narrow extensions. Uh, so it started as just that, right? We we did it manually for a few folks, for a few clients, and it's not impossible to stop sort of ad hoc, right? But it's 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 non-trivial, right? Uh, so we decided to, uh, to make it an open source project. So folks who, uh, so we can use it with our clients. At this point, the majority of our clients use it. Uh, use our tool in the next, uh, but other folks who aren't our clients can still use it, right? If they have similar problems, if they want to, you know, explore uh, just having more than one project in a repo, like and a good example would be you have an application and many libraries the application is composed of, they can still use the same tool. Right? right. It's a great way for a team working on for a common goal, but several multiple teams to share common code in common among themselves without without having to go the last mile and turn it into an npm package yeah exactly and i i think that uh, i just want to make it uh, very clear that even for a relatively small projects right i find this ability to partition my code base into libraries that have well-defined public api that cannot be broken right you cannot violate it right it's statically checked right uh to be useful right an example would be angular console which is another project we, i will talk about in a bit it's a relatively small app, okay? It's not a giant app. Uh, but it's a, it is an NX repo that's composed of like 10 libraries. And it has three apps. And we have a VS Code app and a standalone app and stuff like that, right? So uh, so uh, this is useful not just for large teams. It's useful for pretty much any non-trivial project. Because any non-trivial project will have more than one cohesion unit, right? Uh, like a trivial project has just one blob, right, that you can look at. Any non-trivial, like in your case, Ward, you have multiple uh, like, like features, right? Or like yep. functionally that are maybe connected, right? But still distinct, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, being able to express them as like this is a, this piece of functionality that has a public API that I can define rules for, like how you can depend on it, or who can depend, who can depend on it, what it can depend on, right? Uh, all these rules will be statically checked. It's handy, right? It's handy even for uh, like in case of Angular Console for relatively small project, but it, it's getting more and more useful once your uh, code base grows and more teams contribute to it. So we have oh, that. Absolutely. I'm looking at my current app, the one I've been working on, and, and I've got whole regions of the code that really should be a separate library. For example, the data model and all of the infrastructure to manipulate it, that's its own thing. That has no business being in there tucked in next to the feature for for X and the feature for Y. But there it is, all sitting in one big yeah, source exactly. file. And I, I, and, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sorry. Well, uh, so... And I look at it and I say, I've got one long source file, source folder, and it's got all these folders in it, but some of those should really be libraries. And for me, because I didn't start with NX, it's not an easy process to extract it out. For you, you're saying it is. Yeah, I mean, I, we can talk about how to migrate stuff into NX if you want, and I'm happy to, uh, to, to give you some recommendations there because we help with like, the most trivial parts of making your repo in NX repo, but the 
uh, the hard part, which is partitioning your app into libraries, right, will still be up to you, right? And I, uh, I think that uh, well, why I want to stress it is that even though it may seem trivial, right, that you may be like you can create a new library out of your application and just use it right there, or share it with a different application, but you don't have to share it. Sharing is actually an extra bonus. Just having the library defined with the public API, even if it's not shared, it's still a benefit. Okay, uh, it is. It is not impossible to do it without an X. It's just kind of challenging, right? You need to push stuff to NPM, set up CI, figure out how to do it. You know, and it takes time. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, and I don't want to do that. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. But that's just one part. The more sort of the there are two even more stronger parts where uh, if you just do it naively, like put to NPM and use it. It actually won't work. And uh, the two parts are, the first one is, say if I have, let's say, 10 libraries and one application using it, or two applications using it, right? Let's say we have two LOBs. Again, card and bank contribute to the same repo. They wrote a lot of libraries, right? And they have two, two LOB apps built out of it, right? So now, if I'm uh, someone who is contributing to card, right? If I'm changing my own libraries, that I know for a fact the human being cannot affect your work, who is, like you know, say you're working on bank, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I should not run your tests in CI. If you have a flaky test, in no way I should be affected by your flaky test, right? And vice versa. Mm -hmm. if, and a lot of end-to-end -end tests, for example, tend to be kind of flaky, right? So if you, at any point, you run everything every time you build, you don't actually have a real monorepo setup, right? Because the point is that if I make a small change, I should only touch things that can be affected by my change, which is like a small area in the code base. If I make a large change, say I change the version of Angle everyone uses, well then yes, everyone have to be retested and rebuilt and you know revalidated. Re so that's the first property that you should never rebuild everything unless you touch everything, right? And uh, you can see it even with two teams. The moment I have two teams, yeah, no, that's true. I can see it. Uh, I'm, I'm. You know, I they have to QA the whole darn thing because uh, there's no differentiation between my model code and the the, the shared the shared widgets are all mixed in there, so anything could break. Yeah, exactly. And the the, the one part is okay. SUI is slower, right? And for many projects, you can just I would just throw more money at it and make it faster, right? Uh, but uh, it's still uh, like an argument. You want your CI to be fast, right? But the second point, which is even more important to me, that you should not run other people's code in principle if you don't affect it, right? So it's a matter of principle where no flaky tests, no issues from your side will ever affect me, no issues from my side will ever affect you, unless we touch something shared, right? And uh, that's the first extremely important point. The second extremely important point for what you have to put in place and what an X does, right? An X does both of those things is you need to be able to uh, statically describe what is allowed and not allowed when it comes to dependencies in your, uh, you know, in your workspace, right? Because imagine I build my uh, three libraries for my team, right? One of them is called Card UI Widgets, and it has a beautiful button that I treat as private, right? I think it's private. I'm going to change it next week, right? You don't know it. You start depending on it, and the, the worst part when you depend on it, I don't know because you import stuff from me. My code doesn't change, right? I don't know that you're dependent. In a month, I'm changing it. Suddenly, I'm breaking you. And I come to you like, hey, it's private code. You're like, none can do it. It's already published. In, it's in prod. It will, it will never be removed. Okay, that's the reality. <laughs> Once it's in that situation and you, ha you have teams who are really not part of the same team, but they're distinct, right? You're never going to untangle that graph, right? So uh, uh, the, the key here is to say that I should be able to say which edges, which in that graph are allowed, right? And say that certain things can be private to me so it's going to be public. Certain things can be experimental or not. Even things like certain things that data libraries enhance shouldn't depend on UI. And UI libraries can depend on data libraries, right? So you can establish those relationships. You shouldn't go overboard because if you go overboard, it's just like too hard to, to, to think about it, right? But at least two or three dimensions, like, you know, private, public, you know, the type of library you use, right? Maybe back into front end because I develop my back into the same CLI repo as my front end, right? And to say some libraries are back end, some libraries are front-end, some libraries can be used in both places, right? And I can uh, statically verify that I don't fold the whole Angular into my backend app, right? Uh, so uh, my backend app remains backend, right? So things like that, if you cannot do it, uh, you rely, like you basically rely on uh, code reviews. Code reviews are fantastic or whatever for semantic issues, right? When you examine like, that doesn't look right semantically, right? Something about it is just not good design. Uh, but for things like you have an extra input somewhere hidden uh, in your PR, which I probably will not even know about, all right? But even if I know about it and I go through your 3,000 line PR and there is like an import that secretly imports from my library, 
like, come on, like, I'm likely to miss it, right? So you want to make sure that your tooling just disallows that, right? So those are the two things that Annex mainly does when it comes to this, like, Google way of developing stuff, right? Where you have a lot of apps, a lot of libs living in the same repository, and they can depend on each other, but it doesn't mean that the case ensues, right? Because you have those rules, you can actually have well-defined boundaries, you know, and uh, your graph, the dependency graph, can actually look quite uh, reasonable, right? Uh, if you uh, think about it just a little bit, right? Oh, that's that's so smart. And speaking of smart, John, I believe that um, we want a few minutes of smartness from our sponsor. I think that's a great idea. Are you building a web application? Need to deliver it soon and don't have the people to do it? Maybe you're not sure your company has the skill set or experience to do it. And maybe we can help. I'm your host, Ward Bell, and my day job is building applications for companies like yours. I don't do it alone. I'm president of IdeaBlade, a consultancy that specializes in enterprise web application development. We're particularly strong in Angular, RxJS, NGRx Redux on the front end, and .NET Microsoft technologies on the server. We're a small, tight-knit group of people handpicked by me for their expertise, experience, integrity, and team spirit. Maybe we can help you with architectural guidance and hands-on development. And if there's something we don't know, and in our field, really, there's too much to know, we can draw on our personal connections in the Microsoft RD, MVP, and Google GDE networks, as well as our international circle of really great developers, people we know and trust personally. If you've got a project that's keeping you up at night, Shoot us an email at info at ideablade.com. That's info at ideablade.com. And now back to the show. Something I'd really like to dive into a little bit is when we're building multi-app, multi-team projects, like we're talking about a lot of process and coordination. And that's really what we're getting at for most of this. This is less technology than it is making sure everybody's in agreement on kind of how they do things. Sometimes you don't have control over that. Like you just, you're on a team that's doing it a certain way and maybe you feel like, you know, some things are working and some things aren't working. Uh, what do you do in those situations where like you walk into a company, Victor, uh, as a consultant or as a, as a partner or whether one you've been on like with Angular where you don't necessarily agree with where they're going, you know, you're not going to change what they have, but what's the best way for people like for tips to, to kind of acclimate themselves to a new project? Right. Oh, that's a it's a very hard question. As you and you're besides right. quitting, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. Uh, like tooling only solves part of it, right? Uh, it can enable certain things, but fundamentally, most of those issues are organizational issues, right? It's like, for example, if you have Skype and you like hate your parents and never call them, having Skype doesn't help you, right? Uh, like having Skype helps you to call your parents if you you know, have an organizational agreement, right, between you and your parents that you call each other once in a while, right? So tooling enables stuff, but it doesn't solve the problem, right? Uh, and, uh, I mean, it happens all the time. I think in many large organizations, you have like different lines of business that are managed by different people, right? They have different dev cultures. Even more so, they can use different stacks entirely, right? Uh, you can have one line of business using, say, React and the other one using Angular, which they kind of look the same, right? If you go to the app, you may not even know you switch between the frameworks, right? Because you're going between pages, right? Uh, but they actually just change stacks entirely, right? Uh, so, of course, you're not going to force all of them to do things exactly the same way, right? Because, uh, I mean, if, even if you have the power, it just takes so long, right? It will take years for you to enable that type of change, right? Uh, I mean, uh, the right sort of technical partners folks tend to use, right, to, to make sure that happens, right? To, to enable those type of uh, uh, non-uniform organizations to, to function, right, within the same repo, uh, uh, which is separate from organizational partners, right? The technical partners could be Say if you use uh, like something like custom elements or Angular elements, right? And then every team builds their own elements, right? They get assembled in one app, and then it doesn't really matter how elements are built, right? You can use very different dev strategies to implement those type of things, right? Internally, as long as they, you know, uh, comply, you know, and uh, and have the same uh, uh, sort of public API, which is usually quite small, right? Uh, they are usable and, and replaceable. You don't even care how they do, which patterns they used, how te well tested they are, right? You can sort of glue them together, right? So those type of things can be solved, right? It makes certain things harder, but overall, those are solvable uh, uh, problems, right? Uh, when it comes to organizational changes, uh, frankly, I mean, I, I've worked at many companies where we went through those type of changes, uh, but that's not the type of uh, consulting I tend to do, even though I'm happy to contribute at times, right? I'm not sort of an expert saying like lean, right? Or an expert in agile where I can, yeah. you know, help folks, you know, 
you know, see the, you know, the light of Toyota manufacturing and whatever, right? So, uh, uh, like, I'm happy to help, and I, we can talk about it right now, but I, my opinion is not really that uh, unique or deep over there, right? It's not my ma- main area of expertise. You know, you, uh, you mentioned something that I think, I, I don't know if this is really common, honestly. I don't have a total sense for this, but I feel like it's not. So you mentioned how you have this product in your console and you get the same code base for the server, or not the same code base, but shared code base for the server, Electron, and for the VS Code extension. Um, those are always a dream I hear about inside of companies where, hey, we can use the same code for our mobile apps, our web app, as our whatever app. Uh, they don't always seem to come to fruition to me. I'm curious, like, what kind of things help with that? Or, and also, probably more importantly is, when do you recommend, maybe we could start here, when do you recommend for teams to not even try to go for that? Like, what are the warning signs of, this isn't going to work for you, don't even go there? All right. Uh, so I will I'll, uh, address both. Uh, the first one is, uh, the first question is, like, uh, like what would work, uh, what would help in, you know, in, uh, uh, make, uh, in your being able to ship two versions of the same app, right? Right. Or like, uh, you know, the same app bundled for different platforms. And uh, I think that most of the time when it happens, when you ship the two versions, right, uh, the more code re- you reuse, the less idiomatic app looks in the place where you ship it to. Right, that's just uh, true, sort of the, true. the reality. So, you like it's a trade off, right? If you only build right, if you app, build an app for the mobile web and only the mobile web, then when it goes to a browser, and we've all seen this, right? And vice versa. I go to an app sometimes on my phone and it's like it's only a desktop version. It's like, who did this? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> it, it's exactly the same here in our case with Angular Console. Uh, we started with Electron and then we added VS Code because I mean, using Angular Console in an editor is just a million times better, right? And uh, it's and it's getting there, it's getting better, it's getting more VS Code-like, right? And we have a sort of a layer of uh, sort of capabilities that are provided by VS Code or by Electron and the rest of the app users capabilities. And I would say at this point, maybe 99, 98% of the app is generic and there is this 2% of glue, right, uh, into the, the right platform. But I think for us to be able to make it, for example, in case of Angular Console, really dynamic in, in, uh, in, in VS Code, that number would have to go down to like 90%. Right or like eighty five percent, where uh, the, uh, we have more glue, right, to make sure that we use the primitive VS Code uh, provides. So, I think that uh, what helps with that, right, is a being able to uh, use same chunks of code, like uh, we call them libraries in, in an X, right, uh, at ease, right, to assemble different apps. So the way we do it, uh, in the way we recommend it to all of our clients, is when you build an application, you can think of it sort of from the hexagonal architecture point of view, where you have your application. And then you plug certain capabilities, like plug them, right, at, at the boundaries, right? And the capability can be, for example, open a file. That's a capability in, uh, in Angular Console, right? You can you have a file, you know, uh, widget where you can select a folder or whatever, right? Uh, so that's a capability. So in this case, VS Code and Electron will provide different versions of the same capability, right? Uh, but those are at the very boundaries, right? And when you build your apps, you cannot have capabilities embedded in your lips, right, in, in your functionality. You just plug all these lips together and you configure global capabilities, right? That's sort of uh, the first thing that you must do. If you don't do it, you're in a land of pain. You're going to have a bunch of if statements everywhere, which we know are going to fall apart, right? Do you feel like things like TypeScript help? Yeah, they help a lot. Help, help immensely, actually. Uh, people talk about TypeScript, oh, it's in a way, because I need to type my stuff, I feel less, you know, yeah, they are less, it's, it's less, it's less, uh, it requires more effort for me. Uh, to just, you know, add this little bit of magic or metaprogramming to make it just work, right? Right. But I think actually TypeScript helps because if you want to describe what a capability is, right, you need to have some sort of interface of that capability, right? Because you clearly have two implementations of that interface, right? And if you have a, like a, even for a small app like Angular Console or for a relatively small app, you have like, you know, a handful of like a dozen capabilities, right? So you need to have those dozen interfaces that you can then inject into your components, you know, you can see that they're typed, you know, so you can wonderfully use them. And it's all well and good, so you don't, you know, you know that your uh, everything you use is, is used correctly. If those things aren't, uh, if you don't have types, right? In case of uh, let's say just regular JavaScript, or if you use something like Ruby or whatever, uh, then you basically just have a a name, right? You inject a thing called file opener, and you have no idea how to interact with it because you have more than one implementation of it, right? And it, I think it, it's uh, as a result, what you do is that you don't know which parts of the file opener are truly public. 
and which parts are just happen to be there by accident, right? Not part of the capability interface, but a part of the implementation, right? And the tooling will tell you this stuff as you go along, because the tooling will say, hey, you know, this is your interface, etc. Now, the naysayers, not naysayers, but so the, the other side of that I hear a lot with TypeScript is that, well, when I use tools like WebStorm, for example, it in JavaScript, it tells me all the APIs already. Bingo. By the way, I'm going to paste in here. This is perfect. I was wondering how I was going to weave this in because <laughs> I just read, I just read the most compelling, I, you, know, you know, I'm a TypeScript guy. I just read the most compelling case, substantially made case, not that I, I'm sold by it, uh, against TypeScript. And I'm going to paste it in. It's by a very, you know, very sharp guy. Some of us will recognize Chris Elliott. Yeah, yeah, I read the case, yeah. Uh, it's called the um, the TypeScript tax. And I, I was wondering if you had read it and what you had thought about it, but I don't think we have enough time in here to uh, to get it. Maybe this but could be I, uh, Victor's final notes real quick. Because <laughs> I'd love to hear I, what his opinion on this, yeah. Oh, but I want to hear what, I, yeah, I'd love to hear what your opinion on it because it, it, this makes the case against TypeScript about as well as I've ever heard it made. And I want to hear you say it's why you think, I, I know why I think it falls apart, but you you know. Yeah, and by the way, that's Eric Elliott, just yeah, to clarify. Yeah, yeah, oh, did I call him I think Chris Elliott's an actor. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to yeah. look it up. I'm like, who's Chris Elliott? Wait a minute. <laughs> That's right. I've got yes, he's son of Bob Elliott of the famous Bob and Ray. There you go. <laughs> Uh, so I was talking about TypeScript tax right now. Well, like I was yeah, the TypeScript it. tax. Yeah, not, okay. not Chris Elliott. Okay, cool. So TypeScript <laughs> tax. I I I read the post. And I read it some time ago, so I might be not remembering well. And uh, I think some of the arguments are actually well made, right? They made really well in the sense that there are some studies showing that when it comes to correctness, right, you don't actually save as much by adding types, right? Uh, I mean, I actually read some of the studies uh, years ago. Uh, and I found the studies to be not convincing, right? Uh, and I, I like I actually encourage everyone who look at the study and says, "Oh, it's only like fifteen percent of bugs or whatever, like some small, relatively right, small right, number." Right. Uh, read the studies because in most of the studies, like it's like ten students writing two hundred lines of code or whatever. It's like, yeah, you can think of, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it, it's it, uh, like it it seems not very representative of what I do day to day. Right? Somehow, it, you know, when when you when something doesn't match your intuition, you're like your intuition might be wrong for sure, right? But it's like. That doesn't seem to be like, I think it's more than 15%, right? Somehow you feel like it, it must be more, but, but I read the studies and it's, it's good that, uh, he actually mentioned those and I encourage you to check them out, right? But, but, but I, I look, let me get, let me give him his due because what he, do, he categorizes the, the kinds of bugs that we actually have after we release. And I think he's right. It certainly aligns with, and I say that because it aligns with my experience. He's right that the most, most of the bugs are misspecification. The, the ones that survive are misspecification or, uh, you didn't follow the spec or you did something that, you know, had, you know, that TypeScript said was okay, but, but any reasonable human being would look at it and say, right. that's the wrong thing to do. That's where my, his claim is that's where the real bugs are. And that all the, his sec, the second and most important part is, um, that the tooling that we have is now good enough that you get the kind of, as I'm developing type support that, that we think only TypeScript can give us. And I don't know about that part. It's almost there. I mean, like WebStorm can do some of it, and they do it a different way than, than VS Code does, from what I understand. And VS Code can do it, meaning you can write a JavaScript file in VS Code. I just did this, actually. I'm helping somebody write some JavaScript right now. Uh, and I turned on the TypeScript compiler on the JavaScript file, and it helped me find two or three little things that were bugs. And the other thing it did is it found hints. So uh, in one place, like I like to use error functions, and this person wrote it as a regular function. So I could right-click and say, change this to an arrow function for me. Uh, or using the you know, template strings versus you know, a lot of plus signs in your string. Little things like that. Uh, I find that writing JavaScript personally is uh, it, it's easier when I've got TypeScript tooling. So I'm not always sold on using TypeScript solely. I mean, there's times I use it and there's times I don't. But I'm always 100% sold on using TypeScript tooling whether I use TypeScript or JavaScript. That's a good, uh, a good point. So you can use tooling for JavaScript as well. And I, uh, in my case, I like, because I've, I, I thought about it a lot because I used to be a very dynamic, you know, like the Ruby guy for, for yeah, a long yeah, time. Yeah, me right? too. <laughs> and I, I like, I like some of it, right? Some, uh, and I, at this point, I, even if I run a three line script, I still write it with TypeScript and with types. And I thought about why is that? Because I don't consciously choose to do it. I just do it, right? And I find that, for me, the type what matters about types is not the correctness argument, which you know, uh, you, you're, you're right. So most of the bugs aren't the bugs like you thought it's a string, but it's a number or whatever, right? It's not that. 
uh, it's not the correctness that I care about. It's the documentation or whatever. The type yeah. of documentation for me, when I look at the code, it's uh, I can see with my eye that the variable, the parameter, let's say it has a name user, right? And the type is a string. And I can see that the role the, the variable plays is a user. But what it is, is a string, right? So I convey two parts of information right there, which I couldn't convey. I mean, I can't have like user str or something like that, right? Uh, but like, it's a much more elegant way for me to convey that information, right? That uh, because every, essentially the two things that you often deal with, with anything you deal with, with programming is that what it is, right? Uh, like just data type wise and what kind of role it plays, right? And uh, it's just very hard for me. It was always hard for me to do it in Ruby when I was doing it because you had to figure out a creative way to, you know, put this somewhere, the role part, right? Right. And yeah. uh, in JavaScript, again, yeah, you were either you were either conveying the type or you were conveying the role. Right. But it was difficult to get both. Yeah, exactly. Information Without just uh, doing the uh, the you know weird notation where you encode the role like both of those right. Hungarian notation. Yeah, like exactly. STR. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think that type that what makes uh, that's why when I for example do code archaeology, I look at someone else's code that's been there a long time ago. Having types around helps not for correctness because I'm not even running the code. Right. Uh, is just to see. What do you want to convey to me as a reader, right? And there is just so much more information conveyed once I have the types, right? And the second part is tooling. Navigating around, doing refactoring, stuff like that. That's fantastic, right? It's just a huge productivity increase. If you use VS Code or like IntelliJ or WebStorm, uh, not having that is just like, it's, it's, it's a huge hit, right? It, again, if you look at any non-trivial... Well, app, he makes the point, and I thought this was kind of weird, that if you actually like the refactoring tool, then that shows that your code is too de- too coupled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had... So I felt it's the same as so one last point. I had the same uh, reaction when the Stuart Holloway from the Closure uh, community, Closure with a J, and a brilliant guy. I really like them. I really like him. And he mentioned in one of his talks that, you know, he uses plain text editor because it, when refactoring becomes very painful, it's very hard for him to refactor. It forces him to think a bit more about why is his code so coupled, which is true, right? It does force you to think it, about it this stuff. Oh, yeah. uh, but then, like, I feel like you're just like, you ended up being, you know, in the situation where there is like, you have no tools and you're just trying to justify it, right? Uh, just It felt really like, you know, like a... a Stockholm syndrome kind of stuff, right? Where these, these are all great points, and I think we're all passionate about uh, TypeScript and JavaScript. And I think the three of us all agree TypeScript's a good thing. There's value there. Uh, we should do a whole show on it, though. I think, like any tool, there's a there's a way to use it and a way to at least understand it. Uh, but I, ch- I put all the links in that you all had mentioned there from uh, Eric's article and WebStorm and VS Code, just to show how some of these things work. So if you uh, listeners want to check out how those things work, check out the links in the show notes. And Victor, thanks so much for coming on and sharing with us all this. I also put links in for Angular Console, the VS Code extension. Thank you so much. Uh, and Electron. Definitely check out uh, Victor's work. Uh, been a big fan of yours for years. And not just saying that, really appreciate uh, the, the love that you put into community and open source. Uh, and as far as uh, wrapping up here goes, Ward, we have a someone to follow section where we call out the people in the industry that have inspired us in some way. And I know you have somebody that you alluded to that you wanted to mention. Well, I wanted to... Uh, uh, Draw attention to an article that I read in t- in today's New York Times. It will be some time ago uh, for the rest of you listening. Uh, it's a feature article in the Times Magazine called "The Secret History of Women in Coding," and uh, it's it's fascinating. It it uh, because it really traces it to uh, both over time, what was happening in our culture at each of those times? Because there was a time when there were a lot more women, That was like when I started, there were a lot more women involved and then they disappeared. And it correlates that with um, what was going on both in the history of computing at that time and in and, and society at that time, at, at these various times, at these inflection points. It turns out that the introduction of the personal computer uh, started the decline of um, women in coding, and that moment is the why of that is kind of interesting. Uh, it has interesting things to say about what's happening today, and I just, I, I, you know, as having sort of lived through this coming and going, um, I am fascinated by it, and I hope others are fascinated by it, and I think it's a great launch point for you then to read about the history of computing. Um, uh, more generally, because there are lots of good links in it. So I'm putting that in the show notes. Secret history of women in coding. Cool. Definitely drop that in there. 
And I'm going to call out somebody who I mentioned earlier in the show, and it occurred to me that we don't always give enough props to some of the people who've inspired us throughout our careers. And this person for me is, is Igor Menar, uh, the lead for the Angular team in, at Google. Uh, and Igor is not just a brilliant mind. I mean, you can say that about everybody. I love when we start a sentence of, he or she is, is smart. He or she is so good at this. Uh, yes, but that's not why... He's actually dumb as a box of rocks. Come on, let's just admit it. The guy can't, you know, but but you got to have make fun of somebody, so it might as well be Igor. You know, it, it goes without saying that uh, he, he's done great things, but what really impresses me about him is the way he cares about the community. Uh, he, like other people we've talked about, like Dan Abramoff out there uh, with React and, and Redux, he, Igor has just a great way about talking with the community, about caring about their feelings and responses on GitHub, on Twitter, social media, email, at conferences. Uh, he accepts feedback so well and is always so level-headed when he responds. Uh, it's just, he's just a model for the industry in this. And I encourage you, if you're ever feeling bad, and I know we've all done this, about how you're listening to social media or the news or GitHub responses, go look at how Igor does it. And it's just, just really spot on and a great way to do it. So my someone to follow is Igor. Victor, uh, do you have someone to follow? Uh, sure. I, I, I will mention someone who is not in tech, uh, just to make it uh, different. And uh, so last night, uh, my wife and I were watching a show, uh, Monk, you know, about the detective and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And in that episode, uh, he got, uh, he dissociated. Uh, so he had an episode and he got put into a mental institution for two days. And I thought it's really weird because like uh, he was clearly not causing harm to anyone, right? And somehow against his will, right? He was in the hospital and had this long debate uh, with my wife, who is a, a therapist who worked at a mental hospital for, for a long time, right? Uh, about like whether it's acceptable, right? To take someone against their will and put them somewhere. And I, I, I remember the book I read some time ago, which like sort of I found very useful to think about it which is John Stuart Mill on, on Liberty. And uh, I just recommend everyone to follow John Stuart Mill. Okay, so he's a really weird looking guy with weird history who lived in 19th century England, right? Has nothing to do with what we see right now, so it seems, right? But I think he's like very relevant uh, when we talk about like political issues, like what is acceptable, right? What should the state do to you forcefully, right? Uh, he thought about everything you can say, I, I, I guarantee and wrote it down very eloquently in his essay. So if you're ever curious about, you know, what's going on, like how you should think about those type of things, uh, read me. Uh, and I dropped the links for those in the show notes as well. So thank you very much. And thank you for coming on again. And all the listeners, thank you for listening to us. Another week of Real Talk JavaScript. And you can catch us here every Tuesday morning. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealtalkJS. 